Okay, first a little housekeeping. I have a new website, nickjacomis.com, where you can access all the episodes of the podcast as well as some other content. We will be updating the website in the near future, but it's currently live at n-i-c-k-j-i-k-o-m-e-s.com. And you'll also find there links to my Patreon account, where you can go to support the podcast. Current patrons are supporting my ability to increase the production quality of the show, and once COVID subsides, to travel to guests, allowing me to have face-to-face conversations. With that, I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Hamilton Morris. Hamilton is a journalist, chemist, and the creator of the show Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, currently in its third and final season. Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia investigates the chemistry, history, and cultural impact of psychoactive drugs. Hamilton is one of the most knowledgeable people in the world on the effects of psychoactive drugs, both in terms of his scholarly knowledge of drugs, but also his firsthand experience experimenting with drugs in a methodical but responsible manner. Hamilton and I discussed the newest season of the show, including the content itself, and also what it took to actually make the show possible and his plans now that the show is ending. We talked about a variety of drugs and their effects, ranging from methamphetamine and ketamine to various forms of DMT to ibogaine and xenon gas. I really enjoyed talking to Hamilton. I've been a big fan of the show since the very beginning, and so I hope you enjoy this. If you do, please consider liking, sharing, subscribing, or supporting the show on Patreon. And with that, here's my conversation with Hamilton Morris. Hamilton Morris, thanks for joining us. Having me. Where are you calling in from today? I am in Brooklyn, New York. All right. And that's home base for you? That's where I live. Yes. Is that where you make Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia? Is that where it's produced? Yes. Yeah. So I just started watching season three, I guess a couple weeks ago. I watched episode three, I think, on Xenon uh, just this morning. What is Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia? Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia is a television show that initially was a web series and before that was a written column in a magazine that I've been making since I was 20, 21 years old that is about the chemistry and pharmacology and culture surrounding psychoactive drugs. And how, what was the actual inspiration for doing this? Like what's your background and how did this even come about? Well, I've always been interested in chemistry and science and psychoactive drugs. And I've also been interested in film and in journalism. And I think that around the time when I was growing up in the 90s, um, it was pretty much assumed that anything written about drugs would be disparaging. That was the default mode of discussion of psychoactive drugs. And I think it gave a lot of people a justified distrust of the media because every single person effectively that was commenting on the subject had no idea what they were talking about and were mindlessly 
saying very negative things about these substances and actually causing a lot of harm in doing so, even though they may not have realized that that was what they were doing. And so I felt like there was this opportunity to say something honest and, and scientifically interesting and beneficial to people about psychoactive drugs, this marginalized subject that's really uh, actually central to the lives of so many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's really central to humanity going all the way back, not just the present moment. That was, that was something I learned as I sort of came of age, that humans have always been experimenting with psychedelics and psychoactives in every, basically every human culture that there has ever been. Yeah, no, it's treated as if it's this thing that's separate from science or separate from art or separate from culture or separate from medicine. And that's completely absurd. It's integrated into every facet of almost everyone's lives. And when we refuse to acknowledge that, we do so at our own peril. It doesn't help anyone. And and I think often the well-intentioned idea is if we just don't talk about these things, or we just exclusively say negative things about them, maybe people will use them less and be less interested in them. And that will be a way of uh, addressing the negative relationships that some people have with drugs, but it doesn't work clearly. It's been tried and it's not an effective strategy. Yeah, it definitely doesn't work. I mean, I have, I have vivid memories from the nineties when I was in grade school and going to dare classes and just having them point blank tell you that drugs, whatever it is, marijuana, heroin, if you try it once, you can become physically addicted and overdose. And in some cases, that's a complete exaggeration. In some cases, that's a smaller exaggeration. But there was absolutely no education, at least when I was growing up, around what drugs actually were and the science behind them. Like we didn't have a science lesson in what these drugs did and how they caused their effects or anything like that. It was purely a stigma-driven thing, at least in the 90s. And I, I think I think that has started to change with your show and with with others. You know, Dr. Carl Hart has a book out right now that's pretty interesting. I haven't read it yet, but I've heard him speak about it. So I think it is changing, but it's definitely been a long time coming in the U.S. at least. Yeah, and I I get it, you know, for all of the negative things that I say about the way the media portrays psychoactive drugs, I simultaneously understand why things are the way they are. There's a lot of parallels with abstinence education Mm -hmm. where, you know, if it worked, it would be great. It would prevent the transmission of all STDs. It would prevent all teen pregnancies. It mm-hmm. would solve all of the problems associated with sex if it worked. Mm-hmm. So I see where people are coming from. It would be, it's a, a kind of a fantasy. If we can just scare everyone enough, then... <laughs> I don't know who that is. <laughs> uh, dare I buzz in this unexpected... Uh, go for it. all right um but if we could just solve all of the you know if we could just prevent people from using these things then there would be no associated problems Mm -hmm. and uh the problem is that you can't do it the scare tactics were not effective and so what you have is you have people that continue to use the substances but they often are doing so with the false 
impression that every time they use them, they're causing terrible damage to their body and mind, that what they're doing is self-destructive, that what they're doing is negative, or at the very least, they don't really know what they're doing, or they do know what they're doing and they have no trust for the media or the medical authorities that have lied to them. So it's really kind of a bad situation in almost any way you slice it. And, uh, and I think that, you know, since we've tried it and it didn't work, it's time to try something else. And that's what I've, I've tried to do is mm -hmm. really just approach this from a different perspective of one that is basically, there's no such thing as a bad drug period, end of story. And the more you can learn about all of these substances, the better equipped you will be to cultivate a beneficial, constructive relationship with them, if any relationship at all. Mm -hmm. And so what, what's your general perspective on drug regulation in the United States? What would be the ideal state for, for different, you know, it's not going to be the same for every drug maybe, but on the spectrum of legalization to criminalization to rescheduling to descheduling, where, where do you think common drugs like say cap, cap, uh, cannabis, opioids, and other things should fall in order to, in order to minimize harm overall? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a complicated question because there are attributes that a lot of different regulatory frameworks have that I recognize. Mm -hmm. I have always leaned toward a laissez-faire attitude toward all these things where really everything is permitted and with the hope that uh, people will find a usage pattern that is most constructive for themselves. So mm -hmm. I think a medical model and a pharmaceutical model works very well for some people. And I think that that should also be accompanied by the freedom to cultivate cannabis on your own for personal use. If you so mm -hmm. desire the ability to probably sell cannabis in a sort of farmer's market type scenario uh, in a maybe less regulated way for people that prefer that sort of distribution framework and um, really everything in between. You know, I think that the, the goal of all this should be freedom in the way that, um, you know, foods are distributed where there is some regulation, there's government testing, there are certifications for things that are organic or not organic. There are things that can't be used as pesticides. I mean, I think all of those sorts of regulations are useful to protect the public, but any scenario where people are being locked in cages for the sale of a psychoactive drug is one that makes absolutely no sense to me. Yeah, I agree. And you know, I talk to people a lot about legalization versus decriminalization. And for me, one of the one of the key differences between them has to do with quality control. Because if you merely decriminalize drugs versus you legalize them and have regulations around how they're produced, that's going to lead to a big difference in the purity and safety of what's actually out there. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I would, yes, I would hope. So let's go back to the show, actually. So I love the show and it's essentially structured where every episode is pretty much centered on one drug or one type of drug. So can you talk a little bit about like the first couple of episodes of the new season and how do you actually figure out what an episode is going to be about? How do you meet these people? How do you come up with the ideas? Yeah. Well, as, as much as the episodes are at least superficially centered around a drug, um, 
it's often the drug serves as a springboard to get into a larger issue of one kind or another. So in the methamphetamine episode, it's about methamphetamine, but it's also about how government regulation has destroyed a culture of home amphetamine or methamphetamine synthesis in the United States mm. and how that has pushed amphetamine manufacturing to foreign countries simultaneously um, stripping any connection that Americans had to the chemistry of the substance and making more methamphetamine available at a lower price than ever before. Hmm. So it's sort of about the globalization of the drug trade. It's about the loss of a chemistry culture in the United States. It's about addiction. It's about religion. It's about, uh, you know, about the fact that most of what we think about these substances are values that we impose upon something that is ultimately inanimate and has no will of its own. So it's about a lot of different things, but it's all seen through this lens of methamphetamine. Yeah, that was that was an interesting episode just to be, for those who haven't seen it yet, a lot of it is Hamilton in the room, in the home of a couple different people who are attempting to make methamphetamine in their kitchen. And it just sort of looks at the reality of what they have to do to try and do that, given all the restrictions. And it was pretty, it wasn't exactly a fun episode to watch, but it was vivid and eye-opening, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wanted, I've thought about how best to depict methamphetamine for years, because I think that it's one of the most misunderstood drugs. Of course, mm -hmm. the, the classic example that's typically offered is that, methamphetamine, a drug that's primarily used by impoverished people who have little opportunity is considered a, a deeply stigmatized, unattractive, unglamorous substance. Whereas amphetamine, a drug that's often used by affluent college students is considered relatively innocuous. Mm -hmm. You could tell your colleague that you have an Adderall prescription and they probably wouldn't think much of it, especially if you were performing professionally and socially. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you said that you were using low doses of methamphetamine daily, it probably would be alarming to that same person. And why? Why is that? Is that something that is founded in pharmacology and toxicology? Or is it founded in prejudices that have been cultivated by a classist media? Mm -hmm. And is so the stereotype of the meth addict or methamphetamine is, you know, the picture of someone, you know, 10 years ago and they look great and they have good skin and they, they're smiling. And then you fast forward 10 years and it's the picture of them post-meth and they're missing teeth and they look gross. And the, the general notion out there, I think in most people's minds is, well, that's what meth does. It's inevitable. So what is meth the drug? And can you talk a little bit about you know, is it even conceivable that someone could be using it responsibly or is it this inevitable nightmarish drug that's always going to lead to that type of addiction? Not only is it conceivable, it's medically recognized. The FDA has approved methamphetamine as a treatment for obesity and ADHD under the name desoxin. So it is very much conceivable. And in doing research, you know, when, when I make these stories, sometimes I have a very defined idea of what I want to do, but for various reasons I can't, and they kind of evolve based on the access that I could get. But uh, the name of the episode was a positive methamphetamine story. That was kind of where that was the starting point is I wanted to try to find something positive to say about it. So mm -hmm. I, you know, 
I tweeted something and I said, you know, if you have a positive relationship with methamphetamine, please contact me and I'd love to talk with you about it. And I got messages from a lot of people who have prescriptions for methamphetamine. Some of them are professionals that work in healthcare. Some of them were, you know, worked in construction. It was all sorts of different people um, who had prescriptions for methamphetamine, who didn't abuse it, didn't smoke it felt that methamphetamine offered something that made their lives better. They'd cultivated a constructive relationship with the substance that had lasted for many years. And they wanted to speak out and say, you know, what you are saying about methamphetamine is really something you're saying about desperation and poverty. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when you look at these PSAs, these scare stories that are promoted in the media, you have to really think what are the motivations behind the people that are promoting these ideas? Are, are these medical doctors? Are these people who are concerned about public health? Who is, who is paying for the Montana meth project? Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I looked into this and the answer is it was some multimillionaire or billionaire in Montana, who I think was bothered that there were, you know, poor people in his neighborhood using meth. And so he funded this national campaign, got, you know, Academy Award winning directors like Darren Aronofsky to make anti-meth propaganda for him. And, uh, and then, and then this becomes integrated into our public understanding of the substance when this is really something that is just uh, a kind of a personal vendetta that some dude in Montana has, right? And I even talked to Aronofsky about it because I was uh, speaking at some MAPS benefit dinner and I was sitting next to Aronofsky and you know, Aronofsky, I don't want to uh, blow up his spot, but he's certainly not a drug negative person by any stretch of the imagination. He's, he's, you know, he, he's at a MAPS benefit dinner. So mm-hmm. what type of person is that? And, uh, and, I, and I was saying, you know, well, what was your motivation in making these anti-math PSAs? And, uh, and, he, and he said, like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, do, do you ever think that maybe you're contributing um, dangerous anti-drug propaganda that could ultimately have a negative effect on, on public health? And, uh, and he looked very genuinely concerned, mm-hmm. like he'd never even considered it. And he said, are you suggesting that meth isn't bad? And, uh, and I said, well, I'm maybe suggesting that the, it's not constructive to portray characters of amphetamine addiction um, as a way of treating the problems associated with this substance, you know, maybe this is, is ultimately damaging and, and contributes to a dehumanizing and really like demeaning understanding of a substance abuse problem. You know, we would never accept similar depictions of people who are addicted to certainly to alcohol. I don't think. Yeah. Or, I mean, yeah. can you imagine? I, I, it's like if I was a millionaire and I was bothered living in downtown Seattle by drunk homeless people, which I see often, and I went on this campaign against alcohol. It it just it obviously doesn't work. We already know that, and it, it's just amazing in these examples how it's often, at least sometimes, an individual who doesn't like something. Like that just blows me away. It's like one, oh, yeah. it's one dude in Montana, one dude in Montana, and then Aronofsky. He's not a bad guy. He's mm-hmm. but he's also he's not a pharmacologist or a right. chemist. So he gets a job. Who knows how much he's paid? Mm-hmm. He thinks. Someone says, oh, this is great. You're going to be helping people uh, stop meth addiction because meth is bad. Yeah, and, it seems like a good thing. And he thinks, okay, I'm doing a good thing. And then you create uh, propaganda that's watched by millions of people that furthers the, the stigma and the fear associated with the substance actually makes the problem worse. Mm-hmm. And 
and that's that, that's the end of it. So I think, you know, it's my idea was, okay, let's, let's try to take the opposite perspective. Let's try to say something positive. I mean, the, the first thing that you should say is what I have already said, which is that the differences between amphetamine and methamphetamine are vanishingly small. Um, you know, they, they've done controlled studies where they compare the two substances. People can barely tell them apart. I don't think I could tell them apart. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and and in a medical, in a medical setting, just to be clear, um, you would take these in pill form, right? I would have to look at the details of the study. I believe this is actually a Carl Hart study. Um, but when I was, I also interviewed, um, David Salzer, who's one of the leading experts on the pharmacology of amphetamine Mm -hmm. uh, for my piece, although his interview was not featured in the final piece because I, um, in that particular episode is trying to make construct the story entirely from verite without expert interviews, uh, just as a stylistic decision. But he, you know, went on the record saying that he was not aware of any meaningful toxicological difference between amphetamine and methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. So what is the difference? It's a class difference and it's a dosage difference and it's a a different usage pattern because amphetamine is sold in pre-dosed tablets and dispensed by a pharmacist and prescribed by a doctor and used by uh, relatively affluent people. And methamphetamine is sold as a pure crystal in bags for smoking and used by desperate impoverished people. So that's the difference. It's mm-hmm. like, it, it would be like saying that, uh, you know, aged, aged wines are safer than uh, like handles of vodka. Right, right. The, the actual difference is that they're used by two different types of people, but they're both an ethanol based drug. Mm-hmm. What, um, what is the pharmacology of amphetamines? What are they doing in the brain and what kind of, how does that connect to the feelings that they cause? The most basic explanation is that they're releasing dopamine and norepinephrine and to a lesser extent in the case of methamphetamine serotonin. Mm-hmm. And so they cause the dopamine, they cause efflux of these neurotransmitters via the dopamine and norepinephrine transporter into the synaptic cleft. And the concentrations are much higher than would be occurring under normal physiological conditions. It uh, causes a stimulating effect that causes appetite suppression, uh, increased energy, euphoria, um, and a sleeplessness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They keep you awake. They're uppers. They suppress appetite and you, you do get a euphoria. You get, you know, stimulating effect. Anyone who's ever tried Adderall, I've, I've done Adderall. I used to, I used to take Adderall occasionally in college and it definitely does all of those things. You can stay awake. You can do an all nighter and have energy. You, at the very least, you feel like you have increased cognitive ability. You can sit down and focus more if you actually do sit down and do that. And it suppresses your appetite. So that's why it's that's why it's prescribed for things like ADHD. And you mentioned also that methamphetamine is prescribed for obesity, and that's because of its appetite um, suppressing effects. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So yeah, that's it's amazing. It's basically the same drug, and it's really a class difference. Yeah, yeah, and people buy into this mm-hmm. completely. And, uh, and all these people were saying, how dare you say anything positive about methamphetamine? Clearly, you've never known anyone who's battled with addiction. First of all, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> how on earth could I not know anyone that's battled with addiction? Um, but, you know, really what the, the point of this is to humanize these people mm-hmm. and to, to show that 
the their choices, their struggles are similar to the choices and struggles of normal people, but they might have fewer resources. And this is a way that they're able to get by. I mean, life is very difficult, especially if you're doing hard manual labor for a living. Mm-hmm. And here's this substance that's extremely cheap that gives you, uh, would allow you to, for example, do construction and feel good about it instead of feeling like your life is miserable and you're in pain. It, these, these drugs also have a, a, a pain killing effect as well. Um, although they're not opioids, they, they can uh, have a similar type of effect. So you have, you know, diminished pain response, increased energy, euphoria associated with menial tasks. Mm-hmm. It can really help people out that are struggling who don't have a lot of opportunities in life. And if you're going to say that's a problem with the drug, I would say that's probably more of a problem with a world where there is so little opportunity that people need to use a drug like that to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I don't know any stats on this, but I have heard first and secondhand stories about amphetamines and about opioids and heroin, frankly, where people will take relatively low doses of doses of these things every day or many days out of the week and literally go to work, go and do their very manually difficult construction job or something like that. It's just like you describe it. There's people not to, not to say that that's the right move, but it actually, it, it is used constructively by some people, even these very hard drugs that have almost no, nothing positive attached to them in our culture. Oh, of course. I mean, that's the other, you know, very, prevalent misconception about addiction that most people have is they think addiction is what, you know, is depicted in Requiem for a Dream mm-hmm. or Christian F or these, you know, cinematic depictions of addiction where someone is, you know, in the fetal position in a corner, vomiting and trembling, begging for drugs. When the reality of most addiction is it's often people that are somewhat functional who are using the drugs in order to try to maintain their life in some mm-hmm. way or another, you know, drinking a little bit before work because they hate their job and they just want to be calm, smoking weed all day. So they don't argue with their coworkers who they despise, you know, or whatever, you know, and, the, and this is, you know, this is like a, a reality that a lot of people live and it's often in equilibrium with some stable existence, right? Like they, yeah. people, for the most part are able to actually do this and get away with it. So, um, you know, what you see in movies and TV is not an accurate representation of what uh, chronic substance use or substance dependence looks like for most people. And I, I'm sure I piss someone off by even including cannabis in this discussion, but, uh, but you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm pro- I don't know, but I'm probably, I probably have what you would call a caffeine habit, but I'm not consuming caffeine all day. I'm consuming it every day. I'm having like two, maybe three cups of coffee. And if I don't do that for a day or two, like I'm irritated, I have irritability. So I'm, I'm probably, you know, I have some, uh, I have some caffeine light addiction to caffeine. Oh, certainly. As many people do. It's the one drug I can't quit. I experimentally over the last few weeks have decided to just not use any drugs at all Mm -hmm. to see if, because I have psoriasis and I wanted to see if it had any uh, so I wanted to see if it had any, cause I'd always think like, Oh, maybe if I, you know, smoke a little bit yeah. of weed or improve my sleep and that will make my psoriasis better or whatever. So it is very easy to justify these things. So I decided, all right, I'm cutting absolutely everything out. And, but the one thing that I can't cut out is caffeine. Mm. It's just, it's like unthinkable to yeah, yeah, not yeah, have yeah. that one jolt at the beginning of the day. And that's, you know, make no mistake. That's addiction. 
Have you, uh, have you ever found anything that had an effect on your psoriasis? Oh, absolutely. I mean, clobetasol propionate is, uh, you mean just like steroid creams? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Those never worked. Those never worked for me. Clobetasol doesn't work for you. Um, I don't know if I had that one, but I know I've tried several in my life and they, you know, they gave me, they ended up giving me like the strongest ones and I would say it helped lightly, but it didn't really help that much. And it didn't feel good. My skin became sensitive. And then I would just have like oil on all my clothes. Mm. I mean, for me, clobetasol is like the hydrogen bomb of corticosteroids. It really, it will, it will destroy the psoriasis, but uh, you just don't want to get into the habit. It's almost like, you know, uh, yeah. steroids are almost like their own addiction as well mm-hmm. uh, because you, you build tolerance to them, just like an addictive psychoactive drug. You become dependent on them. You have a withdrawal syndrome when you stop taking them. I mean, these, these sorts of patterns exist throughout pharmacology and throughout life. Oh yeah. The um, it's actually, it reminds me of your show, but there's this show called, I think it's called trafficked maybe on Nat Geo. And this woman goes into you know, a bunch of different illicit markets. So there, there's an animal trafficking episode. There's a uh, prostitution episode. But then there's also a anabolic steroid episode. And she follows this guy along who's, I mean, it, it's pretty obvious right from the beginning. It's a community of people that are addicted to using steroids in order to enhance their physicality. And it, it was an amazing episode because you got to see pretty much in real time, sometimes over the course of hours within a single day, physical visually apparent differences that these people would have like their bodies would transform in two, three, four hours by injecting themselves with a cocktail of steroids. Oh yeah. And just, just for anyone that's listening to this, that is possibly confused. I'm talking about corticosteroids, not yeah, yeah, yeah. steroids. They're both steroid is a chemical class. You know, this, I'm just saying this for anyone that, yeah. that might not know it's a chemical class, but then there's within the chemical class of steroids are pharmacologically very different ones, some of which are basically anti-inflammatory drugs and other ones which are like androgens that help build muscle mm-hmm. and have viralizing effects. Just yeah, I was, gonna, I was gonna ask you to break this down for us. So when most people think of steroids, I think they, they're typically thinking of the anabolic steroids that a bodybuilder would take or an athlete would take. But as, as you just mentioned, corticosteroids, things used for inflammation, um, that, you know, you can, they're, they're used innocuously, you know, you can buy them at CVS or whatever. So can you talk a little bit about steroids? Like what kind of drug are they and what do we know about them at a very high level? Well, steroid, okay. Yeah. Just to repeat what I said, yeah, steroids yeah. are a chemical class. So, you know, like when it's a, it's a backbone of a type of molecule and within that chemical class, you have pharmacologically dissimilar compounds that have nothing in common in terms of their effect on human physiology. The only thing they have in common is a chemical structural similarity, which is not very important to most people who aren't chemists. Mm -hmm. So you have neurosteroids, things like, um, you know, allopregnanolone, things like that, that are sedatives. One of them was recently approved by the FDA as a treatment for postpartum depression. Um, then you have, uh, anabolic steroids, things like, uh, you know, oxandrolone that are used by bodybuilders or people with um, disorders like uh, AIDS associated wasting syndrome, things like that, that can use these substances to build muscle and prevent themselves from wasting away. Um, And then you have anti-inflammatory corticosteroids that are used to treat things like psoriasis or asthma or various inflammatory disorders. And these are pharmacologically totally different substances. The only thing they have in common is this steroid backbone and and Mm -hmm. cholesterol is also a steroid. I mean, steroids are found throughout 
So yeah. the other episode, the episode that I just watched, so new class of drugs now, was the Xenon episode. So you you went through this experience where you were inhaling xenon gas. So what is xenon gas and what, what was that like? So on the periodic table of elements, you have a column. It is the rightmost column on the table and it's called the noble gases. And most people will be familiar with helium which is of course used in balloons. It's lighter than air, so it floats. Um, And then you have other noble gases that are lesser known like argon, krypton, neon, radon, and xenon. I'm not reading, those are not in order for any uh, sticklers out there. I just was randomly naming them. Um, And and the other noble gases do not have as many uses partially because they're very unreactive. That's what the name Mm -hmm. means. They're noble, noble in the sense that they don't uh, react with other compounds. And that was what uh, initially made them chemically interesting. They're also components of our atmosphere. They're in every breath that we take. Anyone that is listening to this is breathing every gas that I just named, except for radon, I hope. Maybe radon <laughs> as well, but I hope for your health that radon is not one of the ones. And, uh, and so they're used in neon lighting and neon signs are used in projector film projector bulbs they're used in car headlights they're used in ion thrusters for different types of uh like satellites and things like that they're used they have a a lot of interesting niche uses um but relative to other elements they're actually they're not used in chemistry in the same way because you can't really do that much with them xenon is a bit of an exception in a number of different ways one is that it does actually form compounds like xenon hexafluoride um and there's a number of fluoro xenon compounds that have been synthesized since the 60s um as well as xenon oxides um but uh but what makes xenon really interesting pharmacologically is that it's an anesthetic at normal baric pressure. So some of these other gases, if you were to enter a hyperbaric chamber, or if you were to go, you know, hundred feet beneath the surface of the ocean under high pressure, they would begin to induce an anesthetic effect, but that effect would be lost at sea level. Um, xenon is the exception. Xenon is an anesthetic at normal baric pressure meaning that if you just fill a balloon with it and inhale that xenon, it will have a very powerful anesthetic effect that is qualitatively similar to nitrous oxide for anyone that has tried that, AKA laughing gas, widely used as a pediatric dental anesthetic. Um, And it's a bit stronger than nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide is not quite capable of inducing general anesthesia especially when co-administered with oxygen, which you have to do, mm-hmm. uh, where xenon is. So it can, it can cause a total loss of consciousness in somebody that is inhaling it. And by the standards of most anesthesiologists that I interviewed, it's basically the perfect anesthetic because of its lack of reactivity. It produces no metabolites. Hmm. Um, it can be recycled. It doesn't produce any known toxic interactions with the body, which nitrous oxide does something that's a bit of a tangent, but I'm happy to go into it if you want to discuss it. And, um, and, uh, and the major drawback is that this is a trace component of our atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And so in order to 
collect xenon for medical use, you have to distill millions or billions of liters of air to a liquid. And then you have to do cryogenic fractional distillation of that liquid air in order to isolate this trace xenon component, which can then be uh, transferred into tanks and delivered to, you know, anesthesiologists or in the case of is, my episode. Uh, is that actually how they get it? They harvest it from air? That's the only way to get it. Yeah. Wow. So it must be incredibly expensive. Extremely. I mean, uh, 50 liters is maybe $1,500. So yeah, it's really, really expensive. So what did it feel like? It feels like, um, it feels, I would say like flipping a switch of euphoria in your brain, like maximum euphoria. Like you, when you, when you inhale this stuff, you enter a state of transcendent hyper euphoria that is um, totally obliterating. And at least for me, had a kind of strong sci-fi character. Maybe it's because I'm, you know, like I was so like, consumed with these ideas about stellar nucleosynthesis and the merging neutron stars. And, you know, of course, we know that everything around us comes from stars, but there's something about xenon that really made me think like, wow, this is mm -hmm. from merging neutron stars. And that it sounds like, like the name of an alien planet or something, xenon. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> uh, I believe it's Greek for strange as well. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's, there's something, and, it, you know, it's, it's very, 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 uh, dense it's so yeah it is greek for strange and it and it's it's so dense that you can pour it like even though it's a gas you can pour it like a liquid into a container and you can float a foil boat on it mm. um and it has the opposite effect of helium where helium because it is lighter than air causes your voice to become high pitched xenon causes your voice to become very deep and low so it's it's a pretty cool element is it akin to laughing gas and how it feels yes so it like is. a stronger, even more euphoric nitrous. I would say, yeah. I mean, I, it's hard to, I, I'm a little bit hesitant to make a direct comparison because I've never used nitrous oxide oh, under really? analogous conditions to the ones, well, I've used nitrous oxide, but not under analogous conditions to the one yeah. where I use xenon, where I'm continuously- You had a full mask on, you were breathing it for a period minutes. of time. Yeah. And, and that immersion in the experience, I think was- really uh, central to the profundity and strangeness. Um, although just even inhaling it from a balloon was also uh, incredibly euphoric and fun. Mm -hmm. And how do, how do these things work? Are they NMDA receptor antagonists? What are they doing in the brain? Yeah, they're NMDA receptor antagonists. So, um, you know, you have, a, a, you have glutamate receptors in your brain and there's a subtype of glutamate receptor called the NMDA receptor. And uh, like I said, it's a glutamate receptor, but it has a coagonist, which is glycine. So you, you typically would have binding of glycine and glutamate onto the receptor. And then that causes the channel to open. Um, in the case of xenon, it appears to bind to the glycine site, preventing glycine binding, and that prevents channel opening, which, uh, is in you know the most productive sense responsible for this effect mm -hmm. so but, it's a certain very widespread receptor in the brain xenon is binding that receptor preventing it from opening what other kinds of drugs are nmda receptor antagonists ketamine, ketamine. mamantine pcp 
methoxetamine, 3-MeO-PCP, uh, dextromethorphan, uh, MK801. So in general, it's drugs that have like an aesthetic or a dissociative effect. Yes. Yeah, yeah. these are really um, an interesting class of drugs because NMDA receptors are all over the brain and they're very important. And also because I think ketamine is, is kind of getting famous recently for its potential antidepressant effects. Can you talk a little bit about what you know about ketamine and, and what's being studied there right now? Yeah, I mean, so, so ketamine was approved by the FDA as a treatment for depression in 2018, right? And, uh, and it is manufactured by Johnson & Johnson under the brand name Spravato. There's clinics all over the place now where you can get ketamine therapy. It's really taken off um, at least anecdotally, a lot of people contact me and say that it's had miraculous life-changing effects for them. Um, I have not been keeping tabs on all of the clinical research that's been coming out on ketamine recently. So I'm not quite sure. Um, I, I was keeping close tabs at the time of Spravato's approval, but I haven't been reading every publication that came out. I know there was some controversy where people were claiming that it's about the mechanism of its action. Is it mm -hmm. an opioid effect? Is it due to the hydroxynorketamine metabolite? Is it, you know, is it S-ketamine? Is it R-ketamine? And, and there are endless ketamine debates. Mm -hmm. um, but the bottom line is that it's a very widely used anesthetic, according to the World Health Organization, it's the most widely used anesthetic on earth that uh, had a off-label culture of being prescribed as an antidepressant that was recently changed. So now it's, you can openly prescribe it as an FDA approved antidepressant. And many people seem to think that it has a miraculous effect. Yeah. My understanding is that there is some debate about the mechanism, but it is supposed to have rapid antidepressant effects for people that have severe depression or depression that has not been treatable through other means. My understanding is that even though, although it has a rapid antidepressant effect, that effect doesn't last that long. It doesn't last as long as what people are starting to see with psilocybin and other things, but that is definitely an active area of research right now. And the, and the rapidity of the effect is extremely important because yeah. if you're if you're depressed, I mean, this is a life-threatening disorder, depression, you know, people talk about cancer in a very serious way, but I think they often don't recognize that depression is a life-threatening disorder mm -hmm. that uh, you don't want to play around with. And, and having a treatment that will allow people to rapidly regain some emotional balance in their life can be tremendously beneficial. Of course, it doesn't work for everyone. I've known very depressed people who've used ketamine and not only has it not helped them, uh, I think that it may have had a, a detrimental effect. So there's, you know, I wouldn't say that it's a, a miracle cure for everyone, but I think it's very good that it's part of our psychiatric arsenal and mm -hmm. that it's accessible to the people that benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Have you ever tried it? Oh yeah. Yeah. What's it like? What's the, what's the sensation like? The sensation is a bit difficult to describe. I wouldn't say that it's really very similar to anything a normal person experiences. Um, it's probably closer to certain 
you know, psychopathological disease states than it is to any kind of normal waking consciousness, you know, probably closer. It's these NMD antagonists are often used as a model for schizophrenia, right? So there's, there's a kind of um, a lot of strange delusions. There can be a sense of privileged knowledge that you are uh, gaining access to information that underlies the organization of the universe. Um, there can be a sort of a grandiose, uh, hypomanic sense of possibility. There can be a lot of, of different components to it. It can be like a waking dream. Um, it doesn't produce the same sorts of open eye visual distortions that a classical serotonergic psychedelic like LSD or mescaline does, but it um, open eye, it can often do very little, but when you close your eyes, it can have a visionary effect that is like a, a waking, maybe like a lucid dream a little bit. Have you used it? Yeah, I have. Yeah. In my experience, it's, it's, it's very dose dependent too. Like you take a little bit, it feels one way. You take a little bit, it feels a little bit more that way. And then you take a little bit more and suddenly it's quite different than it was at that lower dose. Right, right. At lower doses, it actually probably feels most like alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but yeah, I think that's once fair. You, once you cross a certain threshold, it becomes very much, and alcohol is also an NMDA antagonist. So that's not uh, totally, and I'm, when I'm saying alcohol, I mean ethanol, but it, it's, uh, uh, so it's not totally surprising that there's that uh, experiential overlap between the, the substances. But um, as you increase the dose, it becomes less like alcohol and becomes more visionary. And in my opinion, far more interesting. Yeah, I completely agree. And for those listening that have never experienced ketamine, I would say the, the advice I have there is it is extremely dose dependent. So that's what we were just saying. And I've, when I've seen people do ketamine at the lower doses, it's more fun, like in a recreational sense, I guess people generally seem to have a pleasant experience on the lower dose. And when you go to a higher dose, especially if you're not expecting it, it's very different. If you are expecting what's going to happen, which is a dissociative experience, you're not necessarily going to be able to function like you would otherwise in a social setting. But if you are prepared for that, it is extremely interesting in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I think often when people think of drugs, they assume that they're being used socially mm -hmm. and ketamine is interesting because it is uh, at higher doses an anesthetic, which precludes social interaction. And so people will take this in a social environment and have a negative experience, not recognizing that the effect is at higher doses, it becomes uh, difficult, if not impossible to walk, mm -hmm. difficult, if not impossible to verbally communicate. And at some point you may lose consciousness entirely. Yeah. It, it does cause what I would also describe as visionary or even, even out of body experience. It's, it's very difficult to describe dissociation to someone because simultaneously you realize that you're there laying down or wherever you are, you realize that you have a body and you're in it. And yet simultaneously it can feel like you're outside of your body or you're looking at your own body. So there's this very interesting out of body experience. It's a dissociative experience. And if you've never, if you've never had one of those before, it's really hard to describe, but that's what it does at, at the higher dose. Yeah. I made it. And I made an episode about ketamine in the, second season of my show that um, includes a lot of discussion of the qualitative effects with a friend of mine uh, who died named Timothy Wiley, who had, mm -hmm. a, I think, a kind of enlightened and very interesting perspective on ketamine and had used it some absurd number of times. Yeah, I remember that episode. It was one of my favorite ones, I think, from season two. He was an interesting character. Yeah. How do you meet someone like that? 
I had met, you know, I'm always looking for people that have unusual things to say about mm -hmm. drugs. Um, and I had read an article on his website. I was looking for anyone that had something positive to say about PCP because they'd yeah. only seen negative things written about it, sort of similar to methamphetamine. And I read an article on Timothy Wiley's website that was like a, an article he'd written for High Times. It was rejected and he posted it online. And it was this very um, interesting, bizarre story about PCP. And I remember I was probably a, like a, a sophomore in college or something. And I remember thinking... Um, wow, that guy sounds interesting. Better file him away mm -hmm. and uh, and make an effort to interview him at some point because there's something about that guy that seems really bizarre. And then I called him on the phone and he was such a character and we started talking and then, yeah, and then we made a couple pieces together and I really loved him. I thought he was an amazing guy. Yeah, no, that, that was a really great episode. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, one thing I, w I did want to mention, so I was reminded of this by our discussion of xenon and the noble gases. So I don't know if you've ever heard about this, but I encountered on the West Coast here uh, two or three years ago, I encountered a, I did a 5-MeO DMT ceremony and it, it was administered in a very interesting way that I wanted to talk to you about. I don't know if you've ever seen anything like this, but the device used to administer it was referred to as an alchemical lamp. And what it was, was essentially a bong that was filled with argon gas. So argon gas is one of these noble gases. It, it's clear, it's odorless. It doesn't really react with anything, so you can inhale it. And so this large, I mean, essentially a bong, so imagine a large glass bong. It was set up so that the whole thing was filled with argon gas, so no combustion was possible. So it was all pure vaporized 5-MeO-DMT. There was a metal, there was an electrical mechanism in there that allowed a very precise dose of 5-MeO to be fully vaporized. And because of the argon, there's absolutely no combustion. And then there's a suction mechanism in this bong, essentially, such that you get the entire hit all in one shot. So it's like, like this, this little pump puts <laughs> all of this air into you. So it's basically five, it's pure five MeO DMT. In this case, it was lab tested, like very high purity synthetic. And you inhale this breath of argon plus five MeO DMT in one shot so that you can get sort of the maximal, maximal experience all in one breath. And I had never seen anything like it before, but it definitely worked. <laughs> it was a highly effective way of administering something by vaporization. <laughs> That's, I've heard of that before. That's so, so interesting. I love the creativity and ingenuity that people, <laughs> that people bring to the table with these sorts of things. I mean, I don't know that combustion is bad, but that's really interesting. It sounds like an experience. Yeah, it, it was interesting. It was it was homemade, but like very well made. And I was I was just blown away by the engineering. And it was very, you know, they took they took great pains in this context to make sure. I mean, they they did a psych screen basically before you were even allowed to come. You had to talk on the phone with the person administering it. They made sure there was no, you know, history of schizophrenia or psychosis, that you weren't depressed and so on and so forth. And they, you know, they really stressed the setup and that everything was very well controlled. So it was, it was made with that type of safe setting in mind. Sounds great. Yeah. I mean, it, it has a, a borderline cult following. Uh, there are people that have contacted me. I've interviewed people that 
uh, it's not unusual to see it as a deity and mm-hmm. to and for the people that administer it to see what they're doing as a truly religious mission and to take it with all the seriousness of that mission. So, um, you know, and, and that's not uncommon. Casey Hardison, who's an LSD chemist, uh, believed that 5-MeO-DMT was sort of the, the greatest sacrament. It's not unusual for people to believe that. And I, even after smoking the toad venom in 2017, um, had this feeling of, of, you know, it's my responsibility to use the knowledge that I have to make this available to people in the least destructive way that I can, which was synthetically. Um, and I'm actually glad that I, I, my initial intention was to present a synthesis in that original episode. Um, but at that time, most of the tryptamine chemistry that I had done was a, a route called the Speeder Anthony synthesis, which is much less user-friendly. It's more expensive. It's more difficult. It's more time-consuming. It's more dangerous. And that is, if you look at the end of the episode, I'm kind of outlining that synthesis at the very end. And um, and then in the intervening years, uh, there was there were a, a few people. I, I met one chemist who was doing a lot of work with reductive amination of tryptamines, and he had adapted a process that was described in a article about the synthesis of the anti-migraine agent rezatriptan. And he had adapted it to the synthesis of DMT. Um, this was someone who was working in a clandestine lab who uh, unfortunately uh, got caught, but before getting caught, he, um, he had done a lot of pioneering work. Actually, I'm, yeah, well, I, like I did this whole charity thing as uh, part of the first episode. So I'm skipping around a little bit and went and uh, most of the money from this reissued pamphlet about the synthesis of five <laughs> MEO DMT goes to the Michael J Fox foundation. Um, and then there's a t-shirt and then the money all goes to the artists who do these illustrations. And then I drew a t-shirt and I'm donating the money to the legal defense of this chemist mm. because um, his process was, was really or his optimization of a process that had been published was the basis of what I did in my demonstration in Mexico. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think that it's a, there, there was a, uh, an article published recently in ACS Omega. Um, I believe the chemist's name is Alexander Sherwood. Um, and he o- did an overview of a lot of different synthetic routes to 5-MeO-DMT and settled on a kind of a, uh, like a phenyl phenylhydrazine based Fischer indole synthesis, but I think that um, he and other chemists didn't realize that there are ways to modify reductive amination conditions that I believe are the most approachable for the production of 5-MeO-DMT in the sense that they are the cheapest, the most environmentally friendly, and the simplest for the chemist. So, mm-hmm. long tangent there. No, I, um, I, I'm glad you're doing that. That's awesome that you're, you're doing that and donating all that money. Um, I ordered, I ordered one of them myself. I can't wait oh, to, awesome. to crack that open and look at it. Yeah. There's a final, they, I had no idea how many people were going to want them. The first one I, I, I did it with this really small press called cream in Tucson, Arizona. Um, and you know, they're hand, hand printing all of these. This hmm. is, and they made 500 and I thought, well, that's a lot, but yeah, okay, yeah. worst case scenario, I'll have 100 left over and I'll give them to friends or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. sold out in two hours. And then we did another 
pressing sold out immediately. So we're doing a final 5,000 pamphlet pressing that will be available at www.psychedelictoadofthesnorindesert.com. <laughs> and that should be available in uh, about like 10 days or something like that. And it's, it's nice. It's, it has all the original information that Ken Nelson wrote about Bufal Various, as well as this uh, modern synthetic approach to the production of 5-MeO-DMT, which I think is really important to ensure the future survival of Bufo alvarius. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, well, with DMT, so NN-DMT and 5-MeO-DMT both, this is, these are drugs where anyone who tries it, anyone who even hears about it, kind of is instantly captivated because the experience is so intense and bizarre. Can you talk a little bit about the phenomenology and then the underlying pharmacology of 5-MeO versus NNDMT. Yes. And I will even pedantically and obnoxiously say that I think people shouldn't call it NNDMT because 5-MeO-DMT is also NNDMT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's like, I, I feel like there's like a false distinction there. So I think it's better just to call them DMT and 5-MeO-DMT. I'm not critical. Everyone does it. I just, and I'm, it is like a fool's errand on my part, but I just <laughs> feel like I have to say it just, just because I'm also constantly getting, um, messages from people who are very confused that are like, why yeah. are you telling people how to make DMT synthetically? You can just extract it from a Mosa hostilis. It's like, because it's a different chemical. It's more different from DMT than psilocin is from DMT. Mm -hmm. It's a very different chemical. So, um, so yes, phenomenologically, uh, I would say that the two compounds actually represent um, very distinct poles of what we call the classical serotonergic psychedelic experience. DMT is really like a, a very intense version of, I think, what most people think a psychedelic experience is like. Yeah. Um, it is hyper visual, hyper hallucinatory, hyper colorful, transcendent. It's explosive. It's verbal. It's, um, you know, it's something that is awe-inspiring. For me, it's often very personal. I think about my life, my teachers, my family, the people that I've loved. I have hallucinations that relate to my own existence. Um, and it's very short-lived. And it seems to act I'm at the 5-HT2A receptor. The NODMT is not visual for most people, although as is the case with all these things there are exceptions for most people it is not visual it is not environmentally or personally anchored it's sort of dissociative and transcendent so the experience i, I find that my dmt experiences are very personal my 5meo dmt experiences i feel could be anyone's 5meo dmt experiences they have mm -hmm. nothing to do with me they don't have to do with my life they have to do with life mm -hmm. and so and, and the message, if there is any message at all, is often very, very simple and nonverbal and non-visual. And, you know, it could be love or gratitude mm -hmm. or something of that nature. Um, but these are experientially very, very different substances, but they're both tryptamines and they're both serotonin their mechanism. And when you say short, short acting, how, how long are you talking here? Um, in when I smoked the Bufal various venom in my episode, I believe I was unconscious for about 15 minutes. And then by the time that I regained consciousness, I, 
I was already pretty much out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I had some residual effects, but I would say that you have a peak experience. It's 10 to 15 minutes and then a residual experience. It's maybe five to 10 minutes. And then you are, there's a, an afterglow, but you're basically back to normal. Mm -hmm. Um, DMT has a similar trajectory. I would say in my experience is often a little, even shorter than that. Um, you know, it, it depends a little bit on circumstances, but I think it tends to be, yeah, about 10, 10 minutes in duration, very short acting, the rapidly metabolized substances and, um, and, and totally dazzling and awe-inspiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've often, um, well, Hey, that's just, that, that's what fast. One of the things that fascinates me. And I think so many people about DMT and five MEO is they're very powerful and yet they're so short. It's tens of minutes that you're talking about. It's not like psilocybin or LSD where you're talking about hours and yet there's this intensity. And the way that I've often described it is DMT is very visual. And I think it's, you put it good. It's, it's very personal. It may be filled with elements of your own life that you're having hallucinations around. And the best way I've been able to describe 5-MEO DMT, at least when my eyes were open, was you know any story that you've heard about someone having a near-death experience where they just see the, the pure white light. To me, that was my five open-eye 5-MEO experience. It was that white light, and it was just like a feeling of almost congratulations. Like, congratulations, you're, you're, you're alive. Like, yes. very, very blissful. Did you, did you have any reactivations with 5-MeO DMT? Because when I did it, the one time I tried it, um, I was told that, you know, ahead of time, they, they were very careful to tell us, just so you know, in the days and weeks following this, you're probably going to reactivate um, very likely at night. And I was actually skeptical. I was like, eh, I, I've never really heard about that or experienced that with anything else. But it 100% happened. For about two weeks, I would wake up every night in the middle of the night, two, three, four in the morning, and be like, I would say 80% of the way there. So somehow, some way, there is some engagement of mechanisms in the brain that was inducing long-term plasticity. And it was somehow able to, quote unquote, reactivate the experience almost all the way for, in my case, about two weeks. Did you have anything like that? I did not. The most recent time that I smoked the Buffal Various Venom in 2017, I did have a long, I would say maybe two weeks after I was, in, I was totally sensitized emotionally. I would be moved to tears by a cute dog walking mm -hmm. down the street. I, uh, I, was extremely vulnerable and almost childlike in my demeanor. Um, I did not have any reactivations. I have in the distant past with synthetic 5-MeO-DMT and with DMT. And one other distinction that I should mention, and I don't believe in, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's often hard to caution people about these things without simultaneously frightening them. Mm -hmm. But I often hear people talk about DMT as if it's very, very frightening or like, oh, it's a near-death experience. They're like, I don't think I ever want to do that. In my experience, DMT has never been frightening at all. I agree. But, but 5-MeO-DMT has been frightening in my experience. So I would say that um, as, you know, transcendent and glorious as this experience can be, um, all of these experiences should be treated with caution, but I would say 5-MeO-DMT in particular should be treated with special caution. Yeah, I, I completely agree. With 5-MeO, if you're not prepared for it, 
So imagine having, in my view, what's potentially happening is that the five meo is more or less putting you into a brain state, you know, meaning the activity in your brain is not unlike what might happen in a near death or actual death experience. Um, and to the extent that's happening, if, if you're prepared for that, you can just sort of submit to the experience and it's very glorious. But if you're not expecting that, you know, imagine what your ego and what your mind is going to do if you think you're dying. It, it could be very terrifying. And that's, that's really the risk there, I think. Yeah. And the first time I ever used 5-MeO-DMT, I was probably 20, 21. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I was by no means irresponsible in my use. I had read T. Call. I'd read countless Arrowhead experience reports. I had weighed the substance on a milligram sensitive scale. I did it in a quiet room in the dark where there would be no disturbances. I'd read that if I encounter psychological difficulty, I have to tell myself to just let go. I knew intellectually, I thought everything that I needed to know going into it. And the experience was still very, very difficult and very frightening for me and scared me away from it for uh, some time. I kind of would read about these transcendent experiences that people had. And I would think, uh, I guess that's a different person, different type of person. And what what was scary about it? Well, when you have a very intense psychedelic experience, the hallucinations, at least for me, can actually have an anchoring effect. The visual distortions can be anchoring because you have this intense psychological feeling, but then you look and everything is changing and and it kind of contextualizes the intensity of your cognitive emotional experience. And you think, yes, of course, because I'm under the powerful psychedelic. Therefore, of course, I am this way. But the lack of visual disturbances and this feeling that I was really, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but I, honestly, the feeling was, if I had to compare it to something, it was that I was poisoned and that I was dying. And, uh, and it, it felt like, you know, and I would say, you know, and it, I, I tried every, I said, if I'm dying, then I'll die. If I'm dying, then so be it. Mm-hmm. I let go. I submit to death. I tried intellectually to release from fear but I, for whatever reason, didn't have sufficient control mm-hmm. to navigate that experience at the age of 20, 21. And it was tremendously, I don't want to say traumatic, but tremendously disturbing and, um, and, and really made me proceed with caution. And that's actually in the Toad episode, um, you know, before my experience, you watch a, a number of other people have these experiences that are very intense. And I was already apprehensive based on my previous experience. And then to see these other people have these really intense experiences, vomiting and thrashing, um, I was going into that experience with fear. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm grateful that for whatever reason, that time, it was not frightening. And some people listening to this who have seen both episodes will say, so wait a second, you're telling me that you had a negative experience of the synthetic material and you had a positive experience with the toad venom. And yet you're telling me that synthetic is a viable replacement for toad venom. And the answer is yes, I am telling you that because there was a decade between them and the circumstances were completely different. And I believe, you know, people will, people, I think, confuse what I'm saying. They will think that I'm saying there is no one has ever experienced a valid difference. That's not what I'm saying. I experienced a difference between my experiences, but I wouldn't 
chalk up that difference to chemical differences. I would say that it has to do with environment set and setting and a number of other factors. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Ibogaine next. You've got an episode coming up about Ibogaine. There's a lot of really interesting research going on related to Ibogaine. What is it? Where does it come from? What do we know about it today? So Ibogaine is an alkaloid from a shrub that grows in central West Africa called Tabernanthi iboga. The shrub has a root that's rich in a number of different alkaloids and the most abundant, most studied, most prominent one is Ibogaine, although there are others. And um, although you hear a lot of discussion of the entourage effect in the psychedelic community or similar types of effects, I think that often um, these effects are not really evidence-based. It's more of a sort of um, like materialist vitalism that people are imposing on the substance. But in the case of, in the case of Iboga, there actually is a pretty strong case for the other alkaloids contributing. And the best piece of evidence for that is that Ibogaine isn't even the strongest one. You know, uh, Ibogaline is actually a stronger compound than Ibogaine. So anyway, um, it's, a, it's a chemically fascinating series of alkaloids that this shrub produces. They're uh, very structurally complex. They have a, a ring system that is synthetically challenging to produce. Um, and a kind of three-dimensional structure that's really impressive. I mean, I don't even think you have to be a chemist to just look at the Wikipedia entry for Ibogaine and take a look at that molecule and see that there's something really cool about it. And, um, and so these compounds, in addition to being chemically interesting, they have very complex pharmacologies at different types of acetylcholine receptors, NMDA receptors, serotonin receptors, serotonin transporter, and on and on and on. They also seem to release a number of neurotrophic factors. They have anti-addictive effects. They have psychedelic effects. They have uh, borderline dissociative anesthetic effects. And they um, have also been centrally integrated into a religion called Bwiti. And what is that? Can you talk about the religious context? Yeah, it's, um, it's a religion that is practiced primarily in Cameroon and Gabon. So this is that, West Africa. Yeah, Central West Africa. And it's uh, and probably to a lesser extent in the DRC. And it uh, sees, it, it's a, a syncretic Christian religion. So they see the Iboga shrub as the tree of knowledge of good and evil described in the Christian Bible hmm. and they worship Jesus among other things. Um, and they have a, it's a, it's a very rich, very beautiful tradition. Um, there's a wonderful, very rare book that was written about it by uh, an anthropologist whose last name is Fernandez uh, called, it's called Buiti. And you can probably find a PDF of it online. Uh, highly recommended. It's it's. Um, he was kind enough to allow me to use a lot of his photographs in the the piece, mm -hmm. and I just think that you know I've traveled to thirty plus thirty three countries um, studying psychoactive drugs, and I have seen a lot of religions that have a, a drug component to them, and I would say that Buiti is the most beautiful the most rich, the most sophisticated, the most awe-inspiring of them all. I have just 
tremendous respect for everything that they have created there. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my entire life to use a boga with these Buiti practitioners in Gabon and to observe how they helped people in their community. How did that transpire? How did you get involved? How, how were you able to do that? Did they, did they take you right in? Yeah, they did because they're really proud of, they're proud of their, in the same way that, you know, people are often proud of their religions. Um, yeah. You know, in the math episode, uh, the, all the Christian people that I was interviewing were extremely, extremely happy to talk about what they were doing. And believe it or not, they loved the episode that the preacher from that Christian church, you know, his only response to it was he wants a signed copy of a, of a DVD. You know, he loved it. Um, I think that religion is really central to the lives of a lot of people. And they have a lot of, uh, you know, internationally, people have a lot of pride in their religious practices. And um, it's a, a central point of community gathering. It's a point of spiritual transcendence. It's a, a point of support. And so they were happy to allow us to be a part of it. Uh, their really only objection was that some of the people working on the camera crew weren't taking a boga. But uh, other than that, they were really happy with the whole thing and very, very helpful. And those interviews, I wish I could have cut this. I mean, one of the tragedies of making these things is that, you know, each episode is only an hour long, mm -hmm. a television hour. And there's so much amazing stuff that I would love to include. People say, why didn't you include this? Why didn't you? Well, I would love to. I wish that one in particular, I wish could have been longer because there were so many amazing things. The, the shamans that I was interviewing were so tired. I've never seen, I've interviewed countless people. I've never in my life interviewed people that did this. They were so tired that I would ask them a question, they would answer it, and then they would lose this. And then uh, they would wake up for the next question because no one is sleeping no one is eating. They're dancing for 15 hours a day. I mean, it's a, it's a feat of incredible endurance. Um, and I think that there is an implicit lesson contained within the ritual, which is one of, of um, self-reliance and a sense that you have what you need to survive. Mm -hmm. You don't need drugs. You don't need sleep. You don't need food. You don't need water. You don't need to pee. You don't need any of the things that you think you need. You have it all inside yourself. And that idea is transmitted to everyone inside the church and the people that are struggling with addiction, which is another thing. When I was making this, my idea was, you know, most Iboga documentaries that got addiction follow a white person who is addicted to heroin mm -hmm. And they show how a white person is using this African shrub to treat their addiction, which is fine. You know, every, every people of all races should get to use the, uh, to enjoy the medical benefits of this plant. But what I found ironic and somewhat unfortunate is that this is a plant with a history in central West Africa that now has uh, a serious problem with opioids that unlike the United States, they've never had opioid before. Mm. So, you know, we can, we can talk all day about how no one knew oxycodone was addictive, you know, and this is a, a popular talking point in discuss the so-called opioid epidemic. They'll pretend that no one knew opioids were addictive. Uh, I, I am pretty confident that people did know that opioids were addictive as <laughs> even though people 
just keep repeating that all day as if yeah. doctors didn't know there was a big curveball. Oh, wow. Oxycodone was addictive. Who could have predicted that? Um, whereas that is a valid argument. People have no culture. They have not seen, they haven't grown up watching depictions of heroin addiction on television and in movies. They have no culture of opioids at all. In, and then a extremely inexpensive synthetic opioid tramadol becomes widely available and the results are potentially catastrophic. So what I wanted to do was show the use of Iboga as a treatment for opioid addiction in the same region where this plant actually has a history because it struck me as ironic that everywhere else in the world, if you talk about Ibogaine, it's only known as the drug that is a treatment for heroin mm. addiction, yet in this part of Africa that it now is um, experiencing a surge in problematic use of tramadol, people are for the most part not using it for that purpose. It's still a, like a religious sacrament. So that's changing. And that was what I was trying to depict in this piece was to show the changing environment where um, the traditional practices are transforming to incorporate the ultimately American, ultimately New York based idea that Iboga or Ibogaine can be used as a treatment for opioid dependence. Yeah, one of the things, I mean, I love the story. It's a beautiful story in terms of the religious context in which this drug is used by this culture. I had Brian Murrescu on my first episode of the podcast to talk about the immortality key, which you've probably heard about. And one of the things I learned, not from that, not only from that book, but just over the years as I grew up, was how weird modern American culture was in a certain way, which is that I think if you look historically, and I'm not an anthropologist, I don't know what the stats are, but a very large percentage of human cultures historically throughout human history have had a psychoactive or psychedelic drug that was an intimate part of their religious rituals, right? Whether it's ayahuasca use in the Amazon, whether it's peyote use in the Americas, whether it's this Ibogaine uh, ritual in West Africa, whether it's the things that are in Brian's book about the early pre-Christian use of what was probably an LSD-like compound and other things. It's actually exceptional that in America for the last, I don't know how many years, the major, a lot of the major religions have basically divorced themselves from the use of a psychoactive. And that's actually bizarre. Like, what do you, what do you think that is? Is it just our puritanical history in America? And there's a, there's a sort of, schizophrenic component to this because at the same time you have more people in the United States using psychedelics than probably any other country in history at any other time in history. Mm -hmm. So yeah. people are using enormous quantities of the substances, but it's decontextualized and there isn't a, a framework that is supplied to interpret the experience. And depending on your perspective on that, it's not even necessarily a bad thing, but I think for religions, it is actually really unfortunate because um, I, I think that arguably you can say that the psychedelic experience is a religious experience. Mm -hmm. um, and if that is the case, what religion wouldn't want to integrate these spiritual catalysts into their practices? I mean, when I attended the, these iboga ceremonies with the Bwiti church, I just felt so connected to everyone. And I really felt that what they were doing 
was not only valid, that it was the most authentic, useful, powerful spiritual practice I had ever encountered anywhere in the world. Um, you know, I was a convert mm -hmm. and, and um, I think that a lot of people could benefit because what we call, you know, in, in the United States doesn't really have any meaningful connection to, I think, what the, the core components of what religion should be. You know, um, I, I was bar mitzvahed, I learned Hebrew, I went to Israel to read my Torah portion. No aspect of that was in any way transcendent or religious or spiritual for me. It was more than anything bureaucratic and somewhat... Um, mm -hmm tedious really so in terms of your ibogaine experience with the buiti people what what was that like what did it actually feel like when you did it um you know when i was making the piece i was actually trying to de-emphasize my own experience um often when i do these things it ends up being about me and one thing that i was trying to mm -hmm. do in this most recent series was to direct things in a in a verite direction and to try to direct them away from me and my own explanation because i think people have a, a real appetite for sort of infotainment they want people to explain everything to them mm -hmm. and i was kind of hoping that uh, a lot of the experience could come via observation of other people but uh, there is of course something missing there um and and really i chose to emphasize the experience of a local Gabonese man who was suffering from addiction to tramadol and to tell the story through his perspective and his transformation, because I am fortunate enough to not have any opioid problems. And, uh, and I thought that if the point was to show this different perspective, to show uh, mm -hmm. somebody else who's suffering, who's a local person in Gabon, that that would be the best way to tell the story. But part of the ritual is they did want everyone to use Ibogaine. The elderly, children, babies, camera crew, and myself. Babies. And uh, yes, babies. Yeah. Wow. Um, but, but they, you know, they're intelligent about their dosing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to get into the safety of giving Iboga to an infant. Um, I mean, I was talking with one of the people from the church yesterday and who's been using it since they were probably an infant and they're certainly um, sane and functional. They're a student, they're responsible, they have a great relationship with their family. So I think it's, well, I wouldn't want to make any claims about its absolute safety. I think that it's pretty clear based on that local tradition in that cultural context that it is possible to use it without... Um, extremely detrimental effects and with potentially, at least according to them, uh, beneficial ones. So uh, I did use it. In the past, I had only used purified Ibogaine hydrochloride that had been produced via the Chris Jenks uh, method that is depicted at the end of the episode where boa cangene is extracted from Vlaconga africana and then a demethoxy carbonylation process is used to remove the methyl ester to produce ibogaine. So I had actually never, strictly speaking, used an iboga-derived alkaloid before 
Um, and the doses varied depending on what day of the ritual it was. So everyone used a small sort of stimulant dose. Uh, and that would be maybe comparable to, I don't know, maybe something like 75 milligrams of um, ibogaine hydrochloride. And then on the final night, everyone used a larger dose. And I would maybe compare that. Uh, to, it was more uh, a more profound experience than I've ever had from uh, ibogaine hydrochloride. But I've never used more than 50 milligrams of ibogaine hydrochloride, but I might loosely suggest that it was somewhere in the range of, uh, you know, similar to what I am, might imagine 150 milligrams might feel like. And I am aware that people use much, much higher doses than that. Um, you know, there are people that use grams of Ibogaine. Uh, so 150 milligrams is actually pretty low on the, the reported dosage scale. But for me, it was sufficient. Um, it was powerful. It was profound. It had, you, you often hear people compare the psychedelic experience to psychotherapy and they'll say, you know, when I used LSD, it was like 10 years of psychotherapy in 10 hours, but it's kind of, um, it's, it's, it's an analogy. I wouldn't really say that it's actually like psychotherapy. Whereas I would say that Ibogaine is actually like psychotherapy mm. in that it has an almost verbal character where I would verbally work. It was like a, an extended conversation with myself mm. that lasted the entire night where I'd work through problems in this hyper logical way. Mm. And um, it was like, it, it you, you felt, like, you felt like your mental faculties were intact? Oh, absolutely. I felt like I was more logical than I've ever been in my entire life. And, and it wasn't like a kind of, there, there can be a, a somewhat reductive and unrealistic character to the revelations that certain psychoactive drugs promote, like MDMA, where you, you might think, I love everyone, I forgive everyone, everyone is you know, good or something like that. Mm -hmm. there wasn't, it wasn't like that. There wasn't this feeling of, oh, it's just the answer is love. Everything is love or anything like it was kind of it was a very logical hmm. unpacking. And in some sense, a very um, a sort of detached perspective on a lot of events in my life where I felt like I could see them from some kind of pseudo objective perspective where I would think like, oh, you think you hate this person, but you don't hate that person at all. You actually love that person. And the reason that you think you hate them is because it's easier to think that you hate them than it is to recognize that something complicated happened and that it's more painful that it happened to someone that you actually like. And so you're pretending that you dislike them, but the whole reason you were ever involved with them in the first place is because you actually like them and you're causing yourself more pain by hmm. pretending that you dislike them, where if you just acknowledge the, the reason that you were ever acquainted with them in the first place is because you like them, then it will make it less painful when you think about them them you know all this kind of like endless dissection of relationships in a way that felt like i was you know just like unnodding a twisted string of bizarre delusions and justifications to straighten out my own mind and it felt fantastic i hmm. by the end of it i felt like the luckiest person in the world so it felt you just put this image in my mind of a literal unnodding, like you're cramped up and everything's excessively complicated in terms of your rationale for different relationships. And there's a kind of release that comes from literally unnodding these convoluted stories you had told yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, and it was very, I would say very real, very actionable. You know, there's a kind of um, a, a, a stereotype that people have when it comes to psychoactive drugs, that the revelations are delusions and that in the, the hard light of day, when you look back on it, you'll realize it was just a, a drug induced delusion and none of it had any meaning. This was so far from that. I, uh, you know, in some sense, it's very personal and to go into all of it would be uh, beyond the scope of this discussion, but it was very real. And to mm -hmm. this day, I look back at it as like, I genuinely believe it was the most logical I have ever been in my life. And, uh, and it's, it was so such a gift to be able to think about things the way that I was at that time. But in terms of the visual experience, it's not very visual. Um, it does not, it, it, it produces closed eye visions. I was having kind of like maybe like Keith Haring esque kind of like line drawing type imagery. But um, I was, uh, I was really just, like in this extended dialogue with myself that lasted the entire night that felt like it was all oriented toward working through problems and coming to a reinterpreted understanding of my relationships that was beneficial and persists to this day. Wow. How do they um, administer it? With a plastic spoon. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's the root of a tree. The tree is dried. The root is dried. The outer bark is scraped off. It's sifted. It's collected. It's kept in a crystal goblet and the aboga is dosed either with a plastic soup spoon or the buitiest takes a pinch of the material between his thumb and forefinger and just uh, puts it into people's mouths. It's not weighted on a scale, but they, they even say in my piece that there's a posology to everything and that they, and that is true. They're looking at every person. They're giving a certain amount to children, a certain amount to the elderly, a certain amount to women, a certain amount to men, a certain amount to people that are using it um, to dance, a certain amount to people that are musicians and, they are really thinking about how to organize this immensely intricate ceremony that is like a performance. It's, it's like the great, it's, it's like so many things. It's a religious, it's a transcendent religious festival that is also almost like a dance party. That is also like a concert hmm. that the whole village participates also in like a hospital. Like it's, it's really strange that sounds that sounds fascinating though um what so is it swallowed or do you absorb it do you let it sit in your mouth it's swallowed and they give you water to wash it down hmm. and sometimes they they give you other little things like i think people are there's little uh like maybe a small amount of smoked tobacco or a small amount of whiskey or something would be consumed with it but um for the most part it's just swallowed and washed down with water Wow. So it's orally active. It's not like DMT in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's certainly orally active. Have you ever done ayahuasca or pharmawasca where you're orally ingesting DMT together with an MAOI? I have done both. Yeah. I've done both several times and I prefer pharmawasca because I'm 
extremely neurotic about dose. Dose is my whole thing. Dose is the name of the game for me. And, um, and, and dose is really important to me, not just for me, but for everyone else as well. It's, you know, I, for example, if, uh, you know, I'm a, a young, robust guy and I can maybe take these experiences, but what if I wanted to give ayahuasca to my father? What if I wanted to give it to someone who's more vulnerable, who's a little bit older? Would you want to give them a plant concoction where you have no idea what dose they're consuming? That's mm -hmm. not, and you, you, and again, like I said, there is a sort of sophisticated uh, folk postology that is present in many of these traditions, but still uh, I, I prefer to stick with a, a milligram sensitive scale. And I think that um, one of the major advantages of pharmawaska is that it allows that dosing precision, which then also allows you to, to reflect on certain experiences and, and set certain mm -hmm. thresholds. Like 75 milligrams is too much. Mm -hmm. That's too much. 75 milligrams of DMT with 300 milligrams of meclobamide is too much. Can and, we actually back up? Can you describe pharmawaska for people so they have a clear sense of what we're talking about? Sure. Pharmawaska is the, the idea behind ayahuasca is that you have two types of plants. One type of plant contains DMT, and that is sometimes called chacruna or psychotria viridis. And the other plant contains various monoamine oxidase inhibiting alkaloids. Harmine, harmaline, tetrahydroharmine, and that's typically Banisteriopsis capi, and that's the ayahuasca vine. So when you combine the enzyme inhibitor, this is inhibiting the enzyme that breaks down DMT, because DMT is not orally active. So you take this inhibitor, it breaks down, it temporarily inhibits the enzyme that breaks down DMT, then the DMT is orally active, and you can have this oral DMT experience, whereas without an MAOI, you can only uh, experience DMT via parenteral roots like smoking or injection. So um, the same idea can be, can be, the same property can be exploited using chemicals that are not plant derived. And arguably that is a superior way to do it, especially if you are abandoning the biases that are often attached to these so-called plant medicines. Um, so, you know, one of the aspects that is either a, a, in some, it, it really depends on how you think about it. So the ayahuasca vine is actually active by itself without any DMT. Ayahuasca, i.e. Banisteriopsis capi, does not contain DMT, yet it is psychedelic. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is the beta carboline alkaloids are psychedelic, um, but they're not psychedelic in a typically desirable way. They are uh, extremely sedating to the point of being incapacitating really? at higher doses. Um, they're extremely... it, are the beta carbolines different from what you would get in Syrian rue? Because my experience with Syrian rue has actually been the opposite. It's definitely an upper for me. Well, it's dose dependent as well. And it's, they, they are substantially similar. There are, um, there are differences like Syrian rue doesn't contain tetrahydroharmine. Exactly how important that is, isn't clear to me. Um, but, uh, but in any case, the MAYs are, are uh, psychoactive on their own. They're psychoactive on their own. And at high doses for many people, they're incapacitating, extremely nauseating, and they produce a visionary experience, but one that tends toward a sort of delirium hmm. more than um, the kind of what, what people are really looking for. Like I would compare the effect of the ayahuasca vine more to um, like a really 
nauseating uh, DXM experience or something more than I would to DMT. Um, it's, it's not pharmacologically related to DXM, but that's kind of the feeling of like intense closed eye visuals that are sort of um, weird and slightly menacing. And actually, I, I would say I prefer DXM to ayahuasca. I find the ayahuasca vine by itself very unpleasant. Um, and, and I, so for that reason, and, and, you know, often people are incapacitated by ayahuasca. And I think that is from the beta carboline contribution. A high, a high dose beta carboline is going to do. Yeah. That. I don't think that that is the DMT because in my experiences of using pharmawasca, have you ever tried pharmawasca? Oh yeah. 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 I, I find that it's, um, that it's less sedating and certainly less nauseating. And so it's, uh, does, it allows you to have this profound extended DMT experience without the distracting contribution of the beta carbolines, which I don't think are, are really beneficial. So you get a very sharp, very clear, very mm -hmm. energetic, very, um, you know, like I could sit and write at a, yep. in a chair at a desk for the entire ayahuasca experience, something that yep. might not be possible with a, uh, botanical ayahuasca experience. Yeah. And, and for those who've never seen something like this before, the way that I've experienced pharmawasca in the past is you're literally drinking a tea. So you would, you would boil a certain type of seed or plant material in water and these MAOIs go into solution and you drink the tea together with DMT. So the DMT is then orally active. And for me, at least I'm probably not doing, or I probably hadn't been doing a very high dose of the beta carbolines enough to render the DMT orally active, but I certainly wasn't sedated. For me, it was very movement oriented. I could very much feel it in my body before I had the classic mental DMT effects. And I, I definitely wanted to move. So it was a, a stimulating effect and it was more of a full body experience than a purely mental experience like you would get from vaporized DMT but still a DMT experience in character nonetheless. And like you said, like you can do stuff. You're not incapacitated. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's a really, and, and then the most frequently used pharmaceutical MAOI for pharmawasca is a European antidepressant called meclobamide. It's not a controlled substance. And unlike the beta carbolines in the ayahuasca vine, meclobamide uh, is, is essentially transparent in its effect maybe it causes a very minor mood lift or something like that, but it's certainly not visionary or nauseating or um, really much of anything at all. It's a, a sort of transparent oral activator of the DMT. So um, I think that that is, you know, I think that's a really beneficial way to do it. There are arguments to be made in favor of the beta carbolines. I'm aware of them. They may exert medicinal therapeutic effects of their own. And it may actually be uh, less beneficial to do pharmawasca with meclobamide. What but, are the potential beneficial effects of the beta carbolines? I think that they, okay, don't quote me on this, but I think that they have also been implicated in some kind of neurotrophic factor release or something. Although even some of the research on that is a little mm -hmm. iffy. I don't know, I, I, it's been a while um, since I've looked at that research but i remember once thinking oh maybe maybe the potential to induce plasticity or something like that or some 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 arguable benefit to them but experientially i don't consider it beneficial mm -hmm. i've done it i've i've done it every which way 
And yeah. I can say from personal experience, I find the meclobamide root to be the one that uh, produces the sharpest, clearest, most cognitively precise experience, mm-hmm. which is what I want. You know, if you're having revelations, I don't want to be stuck in a kind of torpor where I can't yeah, yeah. write, can't speak. I'm just kind of lost inside myself. I don't like that. That's not the point for me, you know, an experience that can't be articulated is lost. And so the challenge is to articulate and to integrate the thoughts and the revelations into your life and anything that increases the sharpness and the energy of the experience is beneficial for that reason. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, being being sharp and be able, because people often describe these experiences on DMT or ayahuasca or whatever as amazing, but they can't actually bring anything back. And I think you do lose something by being in a state where you're having an experience, but you're not clear-headed enough to actually articulate and therefore remember it in detail. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think that's one of the things that makes DMT remarkable is the sharpness, mm-hmm. is the revelatory precision of the ideas that come to you while you use the substance. Like, have you ever used bufotenine? No. I find, you know, bufotenine to me feels almost emblematic of a, of, of that kind of tired, tired mind tryptamine mm-hmm. experience where you're, you can't really speak. You can't really, um, you know, pure bufotenine base is about equipotent with DMT you know, 50 milligrams or so produces a very powerful experience, but it has, it's kind of an awkward middle child between DMT and 5-MeO-DMT chemically, pharmacologically, and experientially, where it has, it's more dissociative than DMT, but less dissociative than 5-MeO-DMT, more visual than 5-MeO-DMT, but less visual than DMT, and far more nauseating than either of them. And, uh, and so it's kind of, there's a reason I think that it has never quite caught on, despite the fact that it is indisputably a classical psychedelic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, one of those things is that kind of softness of the thought on it. You're kind of in a soupy mindset where it becomes, I think, a little bit harder to uh, articulate and integrate any of the ideas that come to you. Interesting. That's my Interesting. Um, what upcoming episodes are you particularly excited about what are they about and and what can you tell us before they release the three remaining episodes are an episode about anna denanthra colubrina in argentina and i'm excited about that because it's never been shown before i mean one one thing that i I consider responsibility in all of this is to try to tell stories that haven't been told and it's kind of weird because we're at this weird, we're at this time where there's a lot of interest in psychedelics and there's actually a huge demand for basic information, but I've been doing this my whole life. And part of me doesn't want to be the guy that says like Albert Hoffman discovered LSD in Switzerland in this year. And then Mm -hmm. he did this and then he did that because there's it's, you can read the Wikipedia entry. It's all there. So I, I try to use my time and my energy to tell stories that I feel no one else would tell Mm -hmm. if I didn't do them. That's another reason that I've, spent so much time uh, dedicated to clandestine synthesis coverage is I felt like, okay, I'm, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that can talk about the benefits of psychedelics, but 
I don't know that many people that want to make documentaries showing that clandestine synthesis of psychoactive drugs isn't a bad thing. So that's what I should place my emphasis on. You know, there's other people that will talk about Rick Doblin. There's other people that will talk about maps. There's other people that will talk about PTSD. Mm-hmm. There's other people that will talk about MDMA and psychotherapy. There's other people that will talk about all these things. So I should try to think what are the things that no one else is going to do. And those are the things that I should put my emphasis on. So that's one reason that I was really interested in this bufotenine project is I felt like, you know, maybe this isn't the most important in the sense that, um, you know, everyone's talking about bufotenine, but like, this is a, a tradition that is by all accounts disappearing rapidly. I mean, I had a very difficult time finding a single shaman in Argentina who is practicing any kind of uh, anadinanthra ritual. And, and, and what is found, this? What is Anadorantha? Anadinanthra colubrina is a tree that grows in South America that produces uh, bufotenine-containing seeds. I see. That, yeah, that are arguably, at least in terms of the archaeological record, some of the uh, oldest psychedelics used by man. Um, they. How old are we talking? I think it goes back at least... 4,000 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was that, that discovery in a cave in Bolivia, but they're pipes that are even older than that. Um, and it, uh, you know, there's enema tubes, there's pipes, it was snorted, it was smoked, it was used as an enema and it is continues. It continues to be used to this day. Um, so very interesting tradition. It's probably the last psychoactive plant that I'm aware of that for whatever reason has not entered any version of the mainstream. You don't mm-hmm. hear people talking about anadinanthra colubrina. Um, and so that, that excites me. I've, I, you know, I wonder what people will think of it. I think that often they, they, people actually do want to see things that they've heard about previously and sometimes are annoyed when it's something weird that they've never seen mm-hmm. before. But um, I hope that people appreciate this you know, opportunity to see this strange ritual, um, this ancient, this, this practice that uh, is disappearing and, and likely has been around for thousands of years in various forms. Um, the LSD piece, I think it contains a lot of interesting uh, information. Uh, it's, you know, we, uh, I interviewed David Nichols as he synthesized his last mm. compound. And the, um, the Iboga piece is my favorite of the season. I mean, I, I wish it could be a feature length documentary. I think it's so interesting. Uh, and I thought it was, you know, like I said, one of the most beautiful rituals I'd ever seen. So, yeah. Um, I what think prevents the, you from, from making a feature length documentary? I mean, I, I've tried, I pitched, you know, that's the thing. It's, there's so much interest in this stuff, yeah. but the interest is a little different from the way I'm interested in it. Like the, like, you know, Netflix is doing a Michael Pollan thing. And that's great. That's good. That's going to educate a lot of people. I certainly don't object to it, but it's a very, you know, because the emphasis of that is explicitly clinical, it's a little bit more digestible for people. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I, I pitched my Aboga documentary to Netflix I had a meeting and they told me that they're not interested in any stories about Africa. Wow. Why? The head of their, their head of their documentary department told me that. Why? I don't think you would, that this was in, 2018. I don't think he would say that today, <laughs> but uh, that is what he told me in 2018. Categorically, no stories about categorically Africa. nothing about Africa. The whole continent is off limits 
<laughs> that's that so weird. It's extremely weird and disturbing. And, and yeah. it's like just nothing, nothing can, you're just saying no to any. But so they, they were not receptive to a lot of these things. And people say, well, what, why are you with that dumpster fire of a company vice? And it's like, because it's expensive to make documentaries and I care very much about this and I will take money to make these projects from whoever will give it to me. So if HBO or Netflix wants to give me money, uh, I would love to do longer projects. I'd love to do other things, but at the moment I'm working with the resources that I have, it's very expensive to do these projects. And so uh, as much as I might prefer to be doing it somewhere else, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to do it at all. All right. Well, if HBO is listening, here's your opportunity. Ah, yes. <laughs> wow. Um, do you plan on doing another season? No. No. So this will be I mean, the last one. This will be the last one. It's it's too, uh, you know, it, I, I think people don't understand how hard it is to do something mm -hmm. like this. It's actually, I really, I think people should go out and try to make things themselves. I think it's really important for people to make stuff so they gain a little bit of empathy for how difficult it is to do something like this mm -hmm. because uh it's just you know it is it was literally maddening for people so uh, someone on the crew had a you know serious had to leave because they psychologically couldn't take it anymore i mean another person who's working i mean tragic things happen it was it was very 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 difficult for people to do this uh just because of like the long the long hours and the literal hard work or because the content was also wearing on people um the risks the ins the, the the unreasonable demands i mean i was averaging mm -hmm. 13 hours a day seven days a week for a year um i had to work like because of the pandemic i had to work in order to finish the project i had to work unpaid for four months oh, wow. like just insanity like this is a, a pat it basically became uh, a labor of love mm -hmm. um in a in a company that was providing absolutely no support so it was not, um, it was not an ideal situation. And, um, a lot of the people that worked on it went above and beyond what should have been demanded of them to make it possible. And so it's not even just about me. It's about what I can ask of the people that I work with, because it was extremely taxing, uh, and even traumatizing for some of the people that, I mean, this stuff is really, you know, I think it's, when you look at something through it, TV screen or a computer screen, it's very easy to not mm -hmm. recognize the reality of what you're looking at. And, uh, and this is real. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. I'm, I'm glad you said all of that. And there's definitely, I don't know the stats. I don't know how many people watch this, but I can tell you it's enough that uh, for season two, I was back home visiting my parents and my mom, who I would never expect to be watching Hamilton's pharmacopoeia it, it came on tv and she was like oh Hamilton's do you watch this and I was like huh. my mom watches Hamilton's pharmacopoeia <laughs> yeah I mean it's it's it, that's the thing it's it's like it's insane you know that just even just take for example the the large-scale 5-MeO DMT synthesis in Mexico mm -hmm. you know like think about what that was like behind the scenes, how hard that was, yeah. you know, and, and there's no support for that. There's the opposite of support. There's interference. They told me I couldn't, you know, the legal department said, you can't do it. It's illegal. I had to hire independent legal advisors to sh in Mexico I had to, who were working pro bono to show that it was legal to do it. So I was actually fighting against the network in order to do that. I had to pay 
for the transportation of all the equipment into the country. I had to organize the lab to do that along with the rest of my team. And then, you know, doing all that synthesis in an extremely short period of time under, you know, with a single camera, like this stuff is really very taxing to do. And, um, but the reward is, you know, wow, 2 million people just saw uh, a viable synthetic process for the production of tryptamines like DMT and 5-MeO-DMT. If 0.001% of the people understood, that's enough to make a difference. Yeah. How, what's the best way for people who are fans of the show to support you directly? The best way to support me, and sometimes people are very nice and they'll say, like, how do I watch it to support you? I make no money from the watching of mm -hmm. the, the show. So my advice there would be watch it however you can that's most convenient for you. But I, my only thing that I would say is try to watch it somewhere that it looks good because it makes me feel bad when I see like someone has ripped it on YouTube and they've like cut out the end of an episode or there's weird mm. like soccer games cut into the middle of it to get away from copyright restrictions or something. That is, that's a little depressing because I think, oh no, 10,000 people just watched a version of the show that doesn't even have an ending. That's, they're not getting the final part of it. That's sad. Um, I would watch it on Amazon or iTunes. Um, you can, you can also watch it on YouTube by paying, I think $3, uh, for some of the episodes <clears throat> you can find ripped versions on YouTube as well, but they often have some kind of irregularity or something that I feel diminishes the viewing experience. Um, it's also on TV, Vice TV. I don't have a TV. I have no idea how people watch things on TVs. Um, do you have a TV? Not, no, I don't have a TV TV. I watch everything from my computer and I have a projector. Yeah, yeah me too. It's the way everyone is. So this whole yeah. idea, I don't know anyone that has a TV. So, uh, so I don't even know, but if you're the, if you have a TV, I guess you can watch it on the TV <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, um, and if you want to support me directly, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Hamilton Morris. I have a podcast. Uh, and that money is, was extremely beneficial during the aforementioned four unpaid months uh, trying to finish this project. If it weren't for Patreon, it would have, you know, it would have been bad. So yeah, that's the, the best way to support me directly is via Patreon. Wow. So what is next for you? Do you have a next project? What are you going to work on um, coming up? I think the plan is now to just do full-time chemistry for a while. Uh, and what does that mean? What exactly are you going to be doing? Uh, for years, I've worked with this brilliant chemist, Jason Wallach, at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia. And recently, there's been a lot of uh, industrial interest in the psychedelic sphere. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of funding that has emerged. And so mm -hmm. our plan is to, you know, we have, we have funding to do some really cool work. And I, you know, I've always, chemistry was like a, a thing I did on the weekends. Mm -hmm. um, and that was great. And it was a nice kind of side project in my life, but I would love to spend more time just doing chemistry. And I, I won't stop, you know, podcasts and writing and things like that, but unless there's a, you know, a different network offers a really miraculous um, sum of money to do something, I, I think I'm probably going to be taking a break from that. And maybe I'll try to make a movie at some point in the future. Interesting. And you have a, family background in documentary filmmaking, right? Is it your grandfather, your uncle? My father. It's your father. Okay. Yeah. So who, who was your father? My father is a great documentary filmmaker named Errol Morris. And I, uh, I really 
you know, it's funny when he's brought up, it's usually, I feel in a kind of like disparaging way to diminish what I've done, which is unfortunate for me because I want to give him credit for being an absolutely amazing filmmaker. Like I, I admire him. I've learned so much from him. His documentaries are amazing. I write anyone who's listening to this, like, you know, Thin Blue Lion, Fast Even Out of Control, Tabloid. These are all great films that I recommend to anyone who's interested in documentary filmmaking. And he taught me an enormous amount about storytelling. Um, so yeah, that was, you know, lucky for me because he's a, he's a good, a good person to grow up around if you want to learn about making documentaries. Interesting. What, what is, what is, what is the most interesting to you in terms of inspiring your, your chemistry research? What is the research going on today in the psychedelic sphere that you think is particularly exciting? Uh, hmm. I mean, there, there's now that so much of the work that's happening is industrially pharmaceutically oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's, you know, of course, all this work, like the David Olson work on non-psychedelic neuroplasticity enhancers that uh, are similar to classical psychedelics. I think that that's an interesting idea. I think there's a lot of pharmaceutical interest in that. I mean, I think that there's just a lot of basic work to be done. When mm-hmm. I first read Alexander Shulgin's books, P-Call and T-Call, I felt as if everything that had, that everything had been done, that there was nothing left, that he'd made every conceivable psychedelic compound. But of course, uh, the reality is that he had scratched the surface and there are uh, you know, thousands more to be left to be discovered. And I think that um, every, every person that wants to get involved in the sphere has the opportunity to make a contribution if they're, you know, dedicated and, and passionate about discovering new things. You got to meet Shulgin, didn't you? I, many times. Yeah. Can you explain to people who don't know who he is, who, who he was? Yeah. Uh, Shulgin was a chemist who early in his career worked for Dow Chemical and he made a profitable compound called Zectran. And because of the success of that compound, he was given some research freedom and some money. And the nice thing about chemistry uh, relative to things like neuroscience is that a chemist can actually do a lot of work with not that much money. Like you you can Mm -hmm. stretch... Uh, a few thousand dollars in a chemistry lab a long way, especially if you already have analytical instruments, the chemicals are are not that expensive. So he was able to pretty much self fund um, enormous amounts of psychedelic structure activity relationship research in his backyard for decades and publish these two absolutely incredible, strange, beautiful, funny, sexual books called P-Call and T-Call. And, uh, and for me, he's, you know, a scientific idol. I think that he, um, really embodied a lot of very beneficial traits that any scientist should strive to exhibit in their work. And, uh, and anyone that hasn't already heard of P call and T call P I H K A L and T I H K A L buy them on Amazon, read them. You won't regret it. In very simple terms, how would you describe those books? They're gigantic books <laughs> that 
cover his relationship with his wife and Shulgin, who is a co-author of these books um, and their romance, their testing and synthesis of different psychedelic compounds. That's usually the first half of these books. And then the second half is pure chemistry and evaluation of the compounds. So they're, they're half chemistry books, half, uh, love story and then sprinkled within those two components there's an enormous amount of psychedelic history yeah they're, they're fascinating to read i mean most people probably wouldn't know what to do with the chemistry half of it it literally is a manual for how to do chemical synthesis of all of the compounds that are in these books but the first half are these wonderful strange entertaining beautiful stories often funny about shulgin his relationship with the other Shulgin, his wife, all of the compounds they make and the, the adventures that they had together doing all this. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, it's, it's amazing to me how many people who are involved with psychedelics have not read these books because I, I consider them just like the first thing, the mm -hmm. first thing that you should do, do not delay in getting these books, you know, just get them, you don't have to read them cover to cover, flip through them, read it, read around and pick up little bits and pieces or read them cover to cover if you want. That's also <laughs> useful. And, uh, and, and you won't regret it. I mean, it's, it's, they're the best books ever written about drugs. So <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, they are uh, pretty, certainly the best scientifically oriented ones. Yeah, no, I agree. They are, they are, they're very unique. There's really nothing like them out there. So we had some questions on the internet. I'll just ask one very basic one from someone. They wanted to know, what is Hamilton's favorite psychedelic? I think they're asking, mm -hmm. what do you personally enjoy the most? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. If you even have an answer. It's, you know, it's just, it's like saying, what's your favorite song or what's your right, favorite right. movie? There's no honest way. You could, you could make up some answer, but it, it's not, it's just not, uh, or your favorite food or any of these. <laughs> you know, maybe there's someone out there that has a favorite food but that's not <laughs> think about these sorts of things they're all they're all interesting they're all valuable in their own way they're good for different things some are and so you i would never call any psychedelic my favorite mm -hmm. do you think there's any that are underappreciated or lesser known besides the big ones like everyone i think everyone knows about magic mushrooms and psilocybin everyone knows about lsd maybe dmt but what are some of the ones what are some of the major ones mentioned in pcall or tcall for example that the average person probably hasn't heard about you know i i feel so conflicted about answering questions like that because i, I i'm really I'm, i try not to draw too much attention or to advocate for specific substances that aren't widely known because mm -hmm. then, then it, you know, I did a, an interview with Eric Andre recently and I was trying to not draw attention to a substance and that, you know, like what is it called the Streisand effect yeah, where you yeah. try not to draw attention to something. And then 100% of the response is like, I know what he was, I know what he's referring to. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I one, one thing I will say is I'm, astonished by how negatively regarded the N-benzylphenethylamines are. You know, when people talk about the NBOMEs, it is 100% negative. It's like synthetic. I don't really, I've heard of those, but I don't really know what they are. Uh, like 2,5-I NBOME, 2,5-C NBOME, 2,5-B NBOME. And what do they do? 
they're 5-HT2A agonist phenethylamine psychedelics that okay. are um, like that are almost ubiquitously despised by the psychedelic community. If they're brought up, they're brought up only in the context of their misrepresentation as LSD and how they're more dangerous than LSD, which they probably are. In fact, mm -hmm. they are more dangerous than LSD, but I don't think their bad reputation is deserved. And it really pains me whenever I see a substance where the actual issue is people not dosing it responsibly we're not using it responsibly and blaming the substance for that, or just even worse when they, people have no evidence whatsoever that they've even ingested that substance, but they had a bad experience. And so they say it was that it, substance because they know that substance has a bad reputation. So I remember years ago, there was a vice journalist who, you know, had some kind of, you know, went to a rave, took some took some unknown dose of an unknown psychedelic and said like, oh, I think it was, you know, 2,5-I NBOME based on what I heard. And it was so terrible. I'm making a piece about how bad those are. And this is before any of them were even illegal. And I said, all right, well, at the very least, give me a sample of it. And let me take it to the lab mm -hmm. so that I can just identify what this compound is for you. So if you're going to make a, a piece about it, at least know what drug you took. Yeah, yeah. And recall it was 2,5-B NBOME before it was a controlled substance. But again, she had no idea what dose it was. Mm -hmm. And then she's going to, to say that it's the drug's fault and take no personal responsibility. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not trying to hate on this. It's actually, you know, it's, it's very um, common for people to behave this way. Instead of saying, I was foolish, I took an unknown dose of an unknown compound irresponsibly, they'll just say, oh, 2,5-B NBOME is poison, needs to be illegal, you know, that kind of thing. And I really dislike that. And I have used... 2,5-C NBOME before it was a controlled substance. And, you know, I feel conflicted about saying it publicly because these are such hated compounds, but I would be dishonest if I didn't say that I thought it was an absolutely fantastic experience. Hmm. Oh, the other one I wanted to ask you about. So when we talk about mushrooms, by default, people are typically talking about psilocybin containing mushrooms. But I did want to ask you about Amanita muscaria. So mm -hmm. what is the active compound that comes from Amanita muscaria, how is it different? And have you ever tried that? Because it's a very different kind of compound. I've never encountered it myself. And I've heard a lot of different things about it. Yeah. I mean, there's an Amanita muscaria episode in the second season of my show. I've, I've tried it. Uh, it contains a pharmacologically uh, unrelated to psilocybin psychedelic or psychoactive or deliriant compound called muscimol, as well as ibotenic acid and and muscarin and some other compounds, but the, the primary compound in Amanita muscaria that is seemingly responsible for its effect is um, muscimol, mm -hmm. and it's GABA. It's a GABA agonist. It's GABAergic in its mechanism, and a GABA A agonist specifically. And it uh, it produces a kind of loose, watery delirium that is interesting. So it does not activate serotonin receptors like psilocybin or classical psychedelics. It activates GABA receptors, which are the same thing that something like a benzodiazepine would activate, right? Yes, but in it, but it, benzodiazepines are positive allosteric modulators of GABA-A typically, and muscimol is a agonist. So it, it's the same receptor, but a different mechanism at that receptor. And why exactly it produces this psychedelic visionary effect is not well understood. 
Interesting. So it's a completely different, it's a completely different kind of psychedelic compound in terms of its mechanism. We don't really know too much about it. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to leave people with regarding the general subject matter that we've covered here about your show, about anything else? Um, yeah. I mean, I just hope people enjoy the the show and I hope that, um, yeah, I hope that, and you know, I think it's a, it's a good way for people to be visually introduced to a lot of these things that have often kind of only existed in written works in the past to be able to see chemistry. Many people have never seen a synthesis before. I think it's a great way to get people interested in chemistry and I hope people enjoy it and benefit from the work because um, although it was very difficult, it was also fun to make. And I think that uh, it's, you know, a lot of work went into making sure that things were accurate and portrayed in a way that I hoped would ultimately be beneficial. So watch it however you can. And uh, if you're interested in checking out my podcast, it's on Patreon. Awesome. Well, Hamilton Morris, thank you for your time. Thank you for making the show and putting this information out there. I love it. I've been watching it for a long time. I've seen almost every episode, some of them two or three times, I think. And I know that there's a lot of people that really appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah, great. Yeah, thanks for having me.